Jiu-Jitsu is the world's most effective martial art, spanning centuries, even millennia, from the ancient Japanese samurai to today's modern military. Find out what you know about this intense and legendary fighting system. From the dojo to the octagon, we bring the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. This is Shihan Russ St. Hilaire at Jujitsu Master Podcast. Today we're going to talk about combatives. So it's uh, something I get an awful lot of questions about, and that is, what are the history of combatives? Combatives are really popular now. People, especially in the United States, love the whole military thing, you know, hand-to-hand combat. I get a lot of questions about what that's about being that I used to be a hand-to-hand combat instructor in the U.S. Army. I just want to kind of set the history straight and tell you really what goes on with real combatives in the military. The best way to do that is to start at the beginning. And I'm only going to start at the beginning of combatives in the United States. There have been combatives in other countries for literally thousands of years. Anything that was considered a martial art was directly attached to military endeavors. I mean, they've existed in other countries forever. But in the United States, we have our own unique history of how combatives came to be and specifically their relationship to jujitsu. Way back in the dawn of our country at the Revolutionary War, we realized we needed to have some sort of combative techniques. We did have some soldiers and militia within the country, But when it really came to doing the Revolutionary War, we had to import some knowledge from Europe, and we brought over troops from other parts of Europe and instructors from other parts of Europe to help us get our military together and do efficient and effective techniques to fight on the battlefield, more than just shooting weapons, but also how to engage with bayonets and how to engage hand-to-hand. So that existed early on. When it came to the Civil War... Again, there was a need for that type of combatives. Um, weapons hadn't really changed that much. There were still firearms and swords and knives and some unarmed combat that was going on. Early on, they wove in some wrestling techniques and some boxing techniques and some European knife fighting techniques into the military combatives. But combatives as we know it today really started at the turn of the 20th century. At the beginning of the 20th century, uh, there was a man, John J. O'Brien, who was a police officer in Nagasaki, Japan. While he was there, he had learned various forms of Japanese martial arts, specifically some jiu-jitsu, and he brought that back to the United States. And when he came back, he was made a captain Uh, so that he could work with other people in the military to start using those, you know, hand-to-hand combat unarmed techniques and and weapon takeaways that he had learned in jiu-jitsu and put them into the military. That was around, you know, the turn of the century. It was before the First World War was happening that jiu-jitsu was already starting to spread into the military. Early on, there was a captain in the army uh, named Alan Smith, and He also had prior martial arts experience. He was a a judo black belt, uh, one of the early, early judo black belts from Japan. Uh, He got that at the Kodokan in Japan. And he also did, you know, various forms of jiu-jitsu and and a few other things. He 
he interacted with other people that were starting to bring the martial arts into the military. And he um, was tasked with putting together one of the first hand-to-hand combat manuals that he did. And so it's a, it's a very famous old set of books. Um, even though it's military in nature, uh, it has a lot of references to jujitsu and the history of jujitsu. It actually has jujitsu kanji on the front of this military manual. So it really shows that connection early on between combatives and jujitsu. So we get through World War I, um, and you know, soon after that, there's things that happen in Europe where suddenly we, you know, World War II is happening. And, and early on, America is not involved, but you know, European countries are. And jiu-jitsu had you know, spread into parts of Europe, so it's starting to influence other militaries at this time. Uh, some of those early people that uh, were involved in, again, developing military combatives from the core of jiu-jitsu and judo were uh, Reicher Thornberry and Samuel Link, and then they were on the uh, Army side, and then we had Anthony Biddle on the Marine Corps side. We had Will Fairbairn and Dermot O'Neill, who were British officers, um, and they were also trained in, in judo and jiu-jitsu. You know, they were bringing their version of unarmed combatives into the British military, and of course, our militaries kind of came together uh, as, as allies in the Second World War, and there was a lot of exchange of information just prior to World War II and, and then at the beginning of, of World War II. Sort of right at that time, the U.S. military was really starting to understand that principles that are taught in jiu-jitsu and judo are, are really important for the battlefield soldier. So the ability to take somebody down or throw them down or to use jiu-jitsu and aikijitsu techniques to conduct weapon takeaways where you can take a pistol away from somebody or a knife or a rifle, or a bayonet, or other weapons was going to be really important in the close combat that was starting to happen in World War II. I mean, it wasn't just battling out in a field anymore like it was in the Civil War or or often in World War One. right? Now it was going from building to building and house to house and in trenches and in the woods where you're really coming in close contact with the enemy. And those who had these martial art type of empty-handed or lightly armed techniques were going to survive better than the people that didn't know that. The Army really started to think about putting together a consolidated, concise manual that they could use. And as you know, if you've been in the military or known somebody in the military, there's a myriad of manuals and SOPs they use for everything. They decide that they're going to put together this manual. Uh, And this is right, you know, at the beginning of the U.S. involvement in World War II. Of course, World War II had been going on for a while. But in, in 1941 and 1942, the military decides that they're going to distribute a field manual about unarmed combat techniques. Uh, and, and it's not totally unarmed. There, there are, are knife-to-knife techniques and bayonet techniques and other things in, in the manual. But it's mainly focused on unarmed or disarming someone uh, in a military situation. The Army enlisted a group of students of Shishiro Okazaki from Hawaii. Shishiro Okazaki was a student of several styles of jiu-jitsu, primarily Yoshinryu, but there were other, other styles that he studied both early on in Hawaii and then on some trips back to Japan. He you know, was kind of the eminent martial artist in, in Hawaii in the late 30s, early 40s, and throughout the 40s. But at that time... A lot of his students were military, American military students. 
So obviously there was a large military contingent in Hawaii and in protection of the Pacific arena. And a lot of them gravitated toward Okazaki and and his dojo, the the Kodenkan, uh, where he taught a jiu-jitsu style called Danzan Ryu. You know, they were learning these techniques, practicing them with other soldiers, and, and sort of the news got around. People who were in charge said, let's take a lot of the stuff that we already have in combatives, but let's mix that up with a lot of this this jujitsu. So there was a project for them to put together this 1942 manual, which is you know famously known as the 1942 manual, formerly known as FM 21-150A, 1942 U.S. Army Unarmed Defense for the American Soldier. That's the full title. It's quite a title. Some of Okazaki's students under the tutelage of Shihan Kufarath, Sig Kufarath, who was also one of my instructors, put together a lot of the photographs that are in the 1942 manual and a lot of the descriptions. This manual was published and became one of the most famous hand-to-hand combat military manuals uh, in the world. Once that had happened, there started to become a program as part of basic training in the military to do some level of uh, hand-to-hand combat. And then, of course, you know we get uh, a lot of soldiers that are in Asia because of World War II, And now they have a lot more exposure to the martial arts in Japan uh, and other areas uh, in Asia. And they really, really gravitate towards it. You know, they're fascinated by the fact that there is, uh, you know, these Japanese uh, practitioners and sensei who are five foot five tall, you know, weigh 160 pounds. And these large Europeans and Americans are being tossed around and arm barred and choked and leg barred and... Uh, you know, basically beat up by these smaller Japanese people. So there's a fascination in the mechanics and the physics of these arts. That combined with a lot of the the post-war Japanese culture is what really kind of made jiu-jitsu famous in the United States. Now, of course, jiu-jitsu was here since the turn of the century. There were several instructors across the United States that either learned in Japan or, or were transported Japanese people to America that were spreading jiu-jitsu all over the place. But specifically in the military, this is where, you know, there was a development of, of jiu-jitsu into combatives. So as we moved into the 50s and got involved with Korea and then the 60s and 70s and got involved with Vietnam, we started seeing some other martial arts influencing the military combatives in America. So Taekwondo and Warang Do, which came, you know, from Korea, started to really play into, you know, some of the military combatives, although I I will say that the military really realized that the grappling type arts were certainly often more effective in close combat than ones that had circular or flying kicks or any of those type of things. She really didn't get a chance to actually execute in real life, but they were popular and there was a lot of people in the military uh, that really were interested in pushing Korean and, and some Chinese and some other arts into into the military. Karate from Japan and Okinawa had a big influence um, during that time period also. And then the Vietnam War kind of wound down and the military shrunk quite a bit. And there were still pockets of of people that were doing hand-to-hand combat. And, 
you know, military combatants, but it really, it really kind of fell apart except for maybe some level in the elite forces, right? So you got special forces and Rangers and Navy SEALs and those type of teams that would have some level of hand-to-hand combat instruction, but it, it really wasn't uh, formalized across the military for quite a while. I would say most of the 70s and, and the 80s, it really was disbanded. And if you were trained more than just some kind of stuff that you learned in basic training, it was because you went and sought training on your own and, and maybe brought that back to your unit. That went on for, for uh, you know, 20 years, right, is where that was. And, and I can speak from myself during that period, having entered the U.S. Army in 1988. I entered the military and I was already trained in jujitsu, already a black belt. And right away, it was very easy for people to see that, you know, I was highly trained because there, there just wasn't a lot of military combatives being done at that time. Of course, I had the opportunity to leverage that and teach the battalion and, and teach military police and SRT teams. And then, you know, the army kind of pimped me out to external groups like police academies and, and other government agencies to help help teach. But, you know, you're a one man, you know, show at that point. Right. You're you're the guy out there with a program that can, you know, train. But there's no formalized program across the entire military. Some of the people that I had met that had done some formal combatives were, you know, left over from, you know, a time earlier than when I was there. And we did what we could do and really tried to teach people jujitsu in a very military combative kind of way. But starting around 1990, maybe 1991, uh, 1991 being where... I had left the U.S. Army. There were, was a lot of push to restart a formal program in the Army. Now, let me just step back a little bit and say that in the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps still did maintain a program. It was called a few different things over the years, but it, it became formally known as the LINE system, L-I-N-E, and, and that, was, that was still pretty good. I mean, it was still a, a really solid program that really continued in the Marine Corps when some of the other militaries let their program sort of flounder a little bit. Somewhere around 1991, the military decided that they were going to get a formal program together again. So there was a few people that started thinking about what the structure of that program was going to look like. Then there was a lieutenant colonel, Lieutenant Colonel McChrystal, that was kind of tapped to help really research, bring together the right people, and put together a formal program. Believe it or not, one of the first things they did, Lieutenant Colonel McChrystal, uh, along with uh, Sergeant First Class Larson, they went back and they looked at that 1942 uh, manual because really the basis of all combatives comes from jujitsu and was it was captured in that manual. So that's really where they started. And I would say that 90% of the stand-up techniques and the weapons takeaway techniques are either exactly what they were in the 1942 manual or some slight adaptation of that manual. And they did review, you know, techniques from judo, from karate, from ninjutsu, from jeet kundo. Uh, they looked at some forms of wrestling, boxing, and and of course, right around that time too, Brazilian jiu-jitsu was, was coming to the country. And so they were looking at that also. They noticed similarities across the grappling arts. 
So Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Judo being very similar with their groundwork, their Nawaza, and you know Judo having you know a little bit more of a, an emphasis on the on the throwing, and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu having a little more emphasis on the ground. But we had karate and ninjutsu and Jeekwondo, which had some levels of grappling and a lot of striking in it. And then, you know, there was the classic, you know, jujitsu, which was very scenario based on self-defense. You know, somebody stabs you, puts a gun in your face, gives you a bear hug, you know, tries to tackle you, those sort of things. So the team spent a few years and they put together, became the modern combatives manual, um, FM 3-25.150. That came out in the 90s, became the preeminent book and Bible by which the mili- the U.S. Army, at least, was was going by to to start to train people in the combative arts again in a in a stylized and formalized way. Now, around that time, I was still teaching, you know, military units and police units the combative side of of jujitsu. You know, I was teaching um, reserve units and and National Guard units and uh, members from from other military units in combatives. And, you know, early on uh, when the FM 325-150 came out, it wasn't formal. It wasn't digitized yet. It really was literally being printed on uh, copier machines and put together with, you know, these giant staplers that would staple these manuals and they would get them out as quick as possible to the various units so that they could begin training. And they started to train the trainer program. And one of the things that I noticed, which, you know, was really funny was as I went through this, I was like, okay, so I'm looking through this, this manual just to see exactly what they put in it turns out to be all the basics that come out of uh, jujitsu, out of the Kobukai jujitsu program, you know, essentially 90% of it was in our first two levels. And, and I was really glad to see that because I had been teaching that since the beginning and not even knowing what was in the new FM. So it was good to see that they were really sticking, the combatives was really sticking with true jujitsu in its, in its truest form as its unarmed or lightly armed combative style. That became formalized. Uh, they started to train the trainer program. Then there were combative schools set up at some of the major installations, major military installations. Somewhere around the same time, the Marine Corps, which I had mentioned before, had the the line system, had started also trying to look into what they were doing in the line system and and make make it even better. They really wanted to make a better hand-to-hand combat system and something that also had a train-the-trainer program and had a program where you could progress through, I guess, the equivalent of levels or ranks where, you know, you were a practitioner and then could move into an instructor program. And, you know, this this is a great idea because this is the way the military can sustain these programs and continue to develop them over time. So the Marine Corps came up with the Marine Corps Martial Arts Training Program. That, again, came out around the same time. It was, it was in the 90s. General James Jones was in charge of driving that. Lieutenant Colonel Bristol and Master Gunnery Sergeant Urso were instrumental in developing that program and pushing that program through, through the Marine Corps, sort of replaced the line system. You know, here we are now, we're in, we're in the 2000s, and the soldiers that are going in there today are introduced to these military combatives programs that are very formal. There's a formal program. There are formally ranked instructors. There are levels of achievement. 
There are competitions that are done worldwide across militaries. You know, besides your basic program that you're going to learn in your in your basic training, there's ongoing levels that you can get at, at various uh, bases and installations. If you think of where where it was when it when it really started to where it's uh, come to today we we truly have a an excellent military hand-to-hand combatives program one of the things that i like you know most about what they've done with the program now is some changes that they've made just since the gulf war it's really what makes combatives some of the most realistic martial arts in the world and that is these people are actually in combat unlike most of the people who go to a dojo and learn a system or study several systems and get ranking and become instructors and, you know, maybe compete or do, you know, fighting in class. Very few of those people are in actual combat situations where the person on the other side of the equation is trying to kill you. And so that injects a certain level of realism into what they're learning in military combatives. Now what they've done is they have really thought about combatives uh, in a couple of different ways. One is sort of on the competitive side where they do grappling competitions and MMA style competitions, which is really used to sort of breed the aggression necessary to, you know, be successful on the battlefield while mixing it with martial art uh, techniques. Then they have like the true military combatives where you're, you know, you're in full operational gear and you have your primary and secondary weapons with you and you know you're going through scenarios where you're in crowds or clearing buildings or taking people that were combatives and and you're sort of arresting and restraining them or you're out there doing interrogations and they put them in these situations where they have to execute certain portions of their combative techniques in full combat gear in a situation that's not a competition that is excellent, you know, to see a soldier who can use his rifle and then, you know, as, as a almost like a, as a baton and then use his body motion to take somebody down and pin them to the ground while pulling out a secondary weapon, being able to decide not to exterminate this person, but to turn them over and whip out zip ties and restrain this person for arrest and interrogation. I mean, when you see that all blended together, it's it's really a beautiful thing, right, to see how, how martial arts are really meant to be. So I think I think that's uh, that's really key to continuing to develop um, the arts. The other thing that True War really helped change in, in what they were teaching was you can't really combine the competitive the competitive with the combative. They can be used together for training purposes, but when you're truly on the battlefield, you can't be number one rolling around on the ground with somebody. Okay. I mean, there were people early on because of some of the influences of judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu that would be in a combat situation, literally like jump guard or try to do a takedown to the ground and do some kind of reverse arm bar or something like that, not truly understanding the environment they were in where other combatives would shoot them, stab them, hit them with furniture. It, it just it just wasn't really what could be executed in real life. So those type of techniques had to be curbed and pulled back a little bit to say, you know, here are the ones that are truly effective on the ground to maybe disarm somebody. But the whole purpose of these combatives is to dominate your opponent. If they drag you to the ground, it's to be able to reverse position very quickly and then be able to disengage and then engage your weapon systems in order to defend yourself. And that's a whole different mentality than 
taking someone to the ground and trying to use the jujitsu chess game to, to beat them because they learned relatively quickly that that kind of stuff could get you killed. So they really separated those those two types of thinking in their training, one being you know competition for development of aggression and for a safe way to engage an opponent, and the other one is the, the true combatives that you would do in a battlefield situation. That is the history of of combatives in the United States, how we got to where we got to, the influence that uh, the martial arts and especially jiu-jitsu had on on modern combatives, how they exist today and how they're being practiced today, and who knows what the future is going to hold. One of the best things about jiu-jitsu and combatives is they change over time and adapt to whatever the enemy and whatever the danger is, is what they are going to adapt to. So new techniques will develop, new strategies as, as technology changes, so will unarmed and lightly armed combative arts. So that is how jiu-jitsu and combatives are related. I hope you found that interesting, and I look forward to talking to you on the next podcast of Jiu-Jitsu Master. Jiu-Jitsu Master.